0: We want you to know you absolutely matter to God, and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Good morning, friends. How are we? Good. Nice to be in the AC, not dripping outside. Does anybody know what the most well-known Bible verse is in Scripture? (laughs) What's the shortest? What is it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, blah, 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 Good stuff. See, that is the most common, or sorry, that was maybe sacrilege. Let's say it. <laughs> for God to so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so that used to be the most common verse in, uh, that everybody, everybody knew. There's actually a rising consensus out there that John 3.16 has been usurped by another. Does anybody have any guesses of what that one is? Ah, You know, because Jonathan segued. Yeah, Matthew 7.1, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Or more likely, it's been quoted to you as, don't judge me. Or maybe you know it as, only God can judge me, made famous by uh, Tupac. Most of us know this verse pretty well, and you may even quote it or a version of it, to people, yourselves, all the time when you feel you're being judged or attacked. Well, this summer we're continuing in our Coffee Mug Christianity series, where we're working through some of the most misused, misquoted, misinterpreted verses in scripture and trying to get to the heart of what the real intention is behind that verse. So you could probably guess where I'm going with this. I'm gonna dig into this verse and uh, suggest that our 21st century understanding of it may be missing the point. But if we read it as Jesus intended, it has the ability to give so much life and, uh, into a really touchy area of our lives. So let's play this out, how it comes up in our lives. You've got a friend, and they're doing something questionable. Say, they're getting drunk every weekend. So you confront your friend, and you say, man, I'm concerned about you. I, every Saturday night, I see you posting pictures. You're out at 2 a.m. at these bars, and you send me these ridiculous drunk texts, and then you either show up at church hungover, or you just don't show up at all. In general, I'm worried, man. You seem to be losing yourself. What's going on with you? And your friend responds, don't judge me. Let me be me. How about you worry about yourself? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Mind your own business. Sorry, we don't all have perfect lives here. You get the point. What really is the deal with this don't judge me verse, that your friend just threw back in your face. Well, if we take it at face value, basically it would seem that Jesus is telling us that in order to follow him, we must never judge, we must never express an opinion about others or else we'll be dealt with to the same degree that we gave. If we dig a little deeper, though, is that really what Jesus had in mind? The verse he uses here in the Greek for the word judge is kreno which has a variety of meanings, and depending on the context, it can mean different things. It could mean just ordinary discernment and evaluation to reach a decision about something. It could mean judicial litigation. It could mean a bestowal of rewards. It could mean a pronouncement of guilt or an absolute determination of a person's fate. When Jesus teaches us, do not judge others and you will not be judged, he has the last two meanings in view, the pronunciation of guilt and the absolute determination of a person's fate. He is warning his disciples against setting themselves over others and making a pronouncement of guilt before God or proclaiming others' fate. See, Jesus is the only one that has the right to judge us in those ways. Nobody truly knows your heart or my heart except Jesus. So he is the only one who can truly, faultlessly judge what is going on in our hearts. James says it like this, James 4.12, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So the judging in view here is that kind of judging, the God of the universe determining right and wrong kind of judge. It's God's role alone to be the ultimate judge. So if we jump back to our verse, when Jesus says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. He's saying, you have no place to tell another person that they're doomed to hell, that they're a lost cause, that this thing that they've done is unforgivable. Only God gets that kind of say over things. And if you do accuse and judge somebody like that, God is actually going to respond by judging you to the same degree that you just judged that person. And the scary thing is, is he actually has the power to do that. Another thing that Jesus is doing here is he's paralleling back to some earlier statements he's made in the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Forgive our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. See, true believers have experienced mercy and forgiveness from our Lord and Savior, not judgment. In other words, this, this might sound kind of harsh, but to fall into a pattern of life in which we judge others like we've just talked about is to show that we're not actually true members of the kingdom of God because as members of the kingdom of God we are called not to judge but rather to give mercy and grace and forgiveness because Jesus has been so gracious to us in all these ways when we didn't deserve any of it absolute judgment like the judgment that Jesus has here in view is a definitive declaration of another person's guilt as if we have the final word on the matter The problem is we don't. We don't have the final word on the matter. God alone does. And so if we find ourselves doing this, we are actually making ourselves and our way of doing things and our opinions the absolute standard for how to live, in which we then have tried to assume the place of God because it's only God's place to judge like this. When we have this critical, condemning attitude as a pattern of life, we are no longer living out love in our relationships. When we're filled with the love of Jesus, we will be giving out good and grace and mercy to others, not condemnation. So when that love is not present in our lives, we instead live in a vindictive condemnation towards others and reveal that we have not truly experienced the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Jesus follows up this do not judge statement with an illustration to give us a better picture of exactly what he means. In verse 3 he says, And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye it seems that what Jesus was really calling out was hypocrisy. He's saying, who do you think you are to call out your friend for this little baby sin when you've got this big monster sin that you haven't dealt with? Hello? You can't even see what's really going on in your friend's life because you have a tree growing out (laughs) of your face. (laughs) Hypocrite. Because he thinks he can clearly see the sin of a fellow disciple. Yet his religiosity is actually acting as a spiritual blinder in his life. See, I picture Jesus was probably looking square in the eyes of the Pharisees. They were notorious for condemning the shortcomings of others, when in reality, they were the ones who stood condemned because they were doing the very same things. Jesus' point here is that judgment reciprocates. If you judge to this degree, you will be judged to that very same degree, but by God himself. It makes very little sense to approach a Christian brother or sister about a specific sin if you are committing a similar sin and are unwilling to address it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Say you hear another brother or sister, they're they're cursing, and in humility you go to them and you gently and lovingly correct them in private. But then, right after that, you get a phone call from a friend and uh, you share some juicy gossip that you just heard at church. See, is it right to correct someone else's tongue when you're unwilling to correct and restrain your own? All right, here's another example. A father is concerned about his teenager and how she's dressing when she goes out. He wants her to live modestly and knows that, uh, the, knows that males struggle in this area. So, does he have a right to be concerned? I would say yes. As a responsible father, he has every right to set up moral boundaries to help keep in line with scripture. But then right after she leaves to go to the mall, he's alone in the house and he hops on the laptop and he begins looking at pornography. See, one minute he's addressing his daughter's need to dress modestly, even rightly so. But then the next minute, he's living out his own immodesty, sexual fantasy with his eyes and his heart. Jesus would say, you hypocrite, don't call someone else out while you're living in the same sin yourself? Maybe a different wording of this verse would help to better understand it. What if we added this? Do not judge others in a hypocritical fashion, and you will not be judged. We have to come humbly before God, seeking forgiveness and spiritual healing before we'll ever be able to see clearly what other people are walking through. In reality, We love to use this verse to defend unrestrained moral freedom, to do what we want when we want. We use it as a a shield for sin, a barrier to keep others at bay, to justify living as we please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. But here's where our big misinterpretation of the passage unfolds. Most of us read this, and even many non-believers know this verse, as do not judge others and you will not be judged. And we think, okay, that settles it. No judging, period. The problem with this is context. We have to look at the rest of the story where this verse is found to understand what Jesus is really getting at. Again, we've talked about uh, the fact that Jesus is referring to a sort of ultimate judgment, which is God's alone. And specifically, he's calling out believers who are being hypocrites in their judgment. But then let's look at verse 5 to see where he goes with it. Again, he says, hypocrite, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Do you see it? First remove the log in your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to help remove the speck in your friend's eye. Wait, wait, wait. So that means that there is a place for us to judge? Yeah? See, Jesus' point in this passage is, Don't be a hypocrite. How dare you come to somebody else and call them out for their sin when you have this huge Godzilla sin? Your Godzilla sin is actually preventing you from seeing anything clearly. But when you deal with that sin and put it to death, now you'll have the spiritual blinders taken off, and you'll be able to see clearly. I remember the day that I got my first pair of glasses, and I looked out into my backyard, and I could see individual blades of grass. It was incredible. (laughs) I didn't even know what I was missing. My eyes aren't even that bad, but it was incredible what you can see when you don't know what you couldn't see. Jesus is telling us to mind our own business when we've got our own bigger crap to deal with. But when we've dealt with our own crap, when we've repented of our own sin and been spiritually healed, then we can see clearly, like wearing our glasses for the first time. And at that point, we are then actually instructed to help, to challenge, to judge, not in the ultimate only god can judge kind of way but in the brotherly loving kind of way the i see this thing in your life and i want to help you remove that jesus is condemning hypocrisy he is not condemning mutual accountability and moral responsibility and the need to address sin in the church see i think we actually kind of need to rebrand this in our day because judging carries such a negative connotation when we read do not judge so many of us and the world that we live in wants no conflict no condemnation our day could be defined by tolerance and acceptance there's no room for right or wrong morals or calling something out as harmful or sinful we have to be accepting and supportive of everything and the moment that we aren't or the moment that we challenge something we're told that we're judging Look, there is a very clear distinction from hypocritically judging and the brotherly loving judging as Jesus is instructing us to do. I think we can all agree that a believer should not be judging hypocritically. However, I am a strong believer in judging in a brotherly, sisterly, loving kind of way. When done well, a loving rebuke, a correction, an admonition is a beautiful, life-giving thing, nothing like hypocrisy. Hypocritical judging is seeking to tear down the other person. Judging Jesus' way is meant to restore and uplift the other person. Hypocritical judging has no respect for the other person. Judging the way that Jesus directs is drenched with respect and love. Church, we need to do a better job of separating hypocritical judging and judging in the Jesus kind of way. Let's take a look at a variety of passages that speak to the idea that we actually should judge. Because as Jonathan has talked about in the previous weeks, Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you rip verse 1 out of its context where it's found, it can easily be used to say that we should never judge. But when we cross-reference the idea across scripture to see where it stands in the grand story of scripture, then we get a true idea of what he means here. In John 7:24, Jesus is being confronted by religious leaders about breaking the Sabbath, because he healed someone on that day. Even though the religious leaders themselves have no problem performing uh, circumcisions on the Sabbath. So Jesus pushes back at them. He says, he's basically calling them out for being hypocritically, hypocritically judging him. And then he says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Notice he didn't say, don't judge me for how I do things. Nor did he say, look beneath the surface so you can see that you have no place to judge me. No, he says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. So apparently there is a correct way and an incorrect way to judge. The incorrect way clearly being a hypocritical stance, while the correct way is looking beneath the surface, looking at the heart, behind the thing. All right, next example. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. That sounds all great and easy, but the reality is that oftentimes the other brother who has fallen into sin doesn't know they've fallen into sin. Or they think it's just a little baby pet sin that they can just keep at bay. Not a big deal. So when you try to help them back onto the right path, you are seen as self-righteous, as judgy. How about this one? If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. If you've been hurt by someone, someone has sinned against you, you have a right to confront them on it and try to win that person back to restore the relationship. Or how about when Paul writes to his protege Timothy, he says, Preach the word of God, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. This is a word specifically to pastors, that as leaders who have been put in place by God, we actually have the instruction to correct, rebuke, and encourage our community through teachings in the good and in the bad times. And probably the most on-the-nose example is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12-13. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as Scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. Could Paul be any more clear? It certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Those are just five of many possible verses from all over Scripture that reveal that, don't judge me, interpretation of Matthew 7 verse 1, is a weak, one-dimensional interpretation used so that we can do what we want. Scripture interprets Scripture, and Scripture keeps saying, actually, you definitely need to lovingly judge those inside the church for their good. So what does this look like? Great question. As we can see from those few verses that I just skimmed through, there are many different ways that we can get to this correction or rebuke, but they're all pointing to one main reason for this correction. That is to help the other person get back into a right way of living, to beat back sin and get back into following the way of Jesus. The gospel call in our lives to judge or to confront, challenge one another is a highly loving relational call. So pointing back to earlier, a really easy way to determine whether you're being judgmental in a wrong way or you're confronting challenging in a right way is whether you're doing it to belittle and shame and criticize them or whether it's out of love and seeking to restore the person and restore the relationship. The reality is we all sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have things in our life that we're struggling through and working on. We all have blind spots where we may not even know that we're walking in something sinful or harmful or hurting other people. So how do we confront or challenge someone else when these things come up? First step is going right back to what we already talked about. Don't hypocritically judge. Figure your own crap out first. Don't be opening your mouth to confront someone if you've got your own pile of hidden, unrepentant sin, especially if it is the same type, of spin, same type of sin. You want to deal with the log in your own eye before you can try and help someone else with their speck. And check your heart motivation for why you are confronting. Okay, so assuming we've all done this, as far as you're aware, then we move on to step two. Step two is to find your few a weird sentence. The absolute best way that this works is in deep, intentional relationship. At the bare minimum, I think every one of us should be in a small group community. I don't know if it's residual effects of stay-at-home orders or just shifting generations, but there seems to be an apathy, especially among younger generations, that don't want to or aren't prioritizing the time or the effort to be in a small group. I just want to push back on that for a second. We need intentional community, vulnerable community. Sunday mornings are great, but they aren't meant to fill this need in your life, this small group need to know and to be known. Jesus himself had a group of 12 disciples. What makes you think that you don't need that? Ideally, though, for loving correction to be done really well, I think it needs to be done in a group of three, four, five people that you've invited to speak into your life. I'll tell you what it looks like in my life. I have three men that are around my age that I have specifically invited to speak into my life. These guys that I know deeply, I trust their relationships with God, and I trust their care for me as a brother. I have basically given them free reign to challenge, confront, encourage, rebuke me as they see fit. I also have a mentor, a guy that's about 20 years older than me, who has uh, expressly invited into my life. He has a unique perspective that myself and my three peers don't have. He's been married for 25 years. I've been married for almost five. He's very close to being an empty nester. I'm just at the beginning of raising children. He's been a pastor for close to 30 years. I'm in my sixth. He has experience and age and wisdom that I just simply do not have at this stage of my life. And he has journeyed with me over the past number of years through life's up and downs. And then, of course, I have my wife, who knows me better than anybody and experiences my successes and my failures far more acutely than anyone else in my life. So for these four guys and Brittany, they know me. They know my inclinations, they know my temptations, they know my strengths and my weaknesses, and they can see my blind spots that I can't even see. And because of all this, again, I have invited them to speak into my life. I have given them permission to challenge me when they see I need it, to encourage me when I need it, to rebuke me when I need it, to protect me when I'm weak. Whatever they come to me with, I am open because They have earned that place in my life. Now, I may not always love what they have to say. In the moment, I may even be defensive, caught off guard, or whatever. But at the end of the day, I know that they are thoughtfully and prayerfully caring for me and actually protecting me. You know what one of the awesome things about being surrounded by a group like this is? It's going to be next to impossible for me to walk away from my faith. I have these guys flanking me from every side. Even if I wanted to walk away from my faith, or from this church, or from my marriage, or being an uninvolved dad, you darn well better believe that these guys around me are going to challenge and encourage and make it darn near impossible for me to do so. Because they know what I actually want, who I actually am, my deeply held convictions, and they're going to help me get back to where I need to be. Accountability, challenging confronting, they are beautiful, life-giving things when we allow them. There's a number of people in the the Big C Church and probably in our church, maybe some of you sitting here today or watching online, that are one or two steps away from, from walking away from your faith. I know that because I've seen it happen over and over and over again. And you know what a common denominator is? Almost every single time, they don't have their few. They're isolated. You know, in the animal world, do you know who the apex predator goes for? It's always the weak or the isolated. Our enemy is no different. If you're trying to wander through your walk with Jesus without brothers or sisters walking beside you, you are such an easy target for the enemy to pick you off. We all need community, big community, this kind of community, to be encouraged and built up, smaller, small group community, to be equipped and challenged and sent out, and then even smaller community, to be known, cared for, for them to have your back, no matter how hard it gets. This idea of these core relationships, accountability partners, whatever you want to call it, this idea is really sexy on paper. But the practice is very hard. It's messy. Being confronted sucks in the moment. And doing the confronting feels really crappy. But when we realize that this is actually for our best, that we're in this to bring fullness of life, it makes it so worth it. Now, beyond that, I believe that there is also a space for members of my larger church community To challenge and confront me our church family is filled with different giftings and perspectives than I have and again if they aren't coming at me from a hypocritical perspective but instead are confronting me in love and humility with deeper relationship or restoration in view then I believe that we're called to be open to receive and give what we have to share with each other here's a quick example from the New Testament Peter and Paul were both pillars in the New Testament church Um, they were both apostles of Jesus Christ, both playing huge roles in the advancement of the gospel in the early church. But they wouldn't have considered themselves in each other's inner circle. They ran in different lanes. Yet here's this passage in Galatians 2 where Paul confronts Peter. Paul says, uh, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. And we skip down to verse 14. "When, When I saw... That they were not following the truth of the gospel message i said to peter in front of all the others since you a jew by birth have discarded the jewish laws and are living like a gentile why are you now trying to make these gentiles follow the jewish traditions essentially paul calls out peter for being a racist to the gentile believers when the jewish believers show up paul is not in a deep intentional relationship with peter but he sees the significant sin area in Peter's life and rightly confronts him on it. All believers in Jesus are on this journey together to make the most of Jesus and advance the gospel for his glory. So when someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is living in habitual sin, has an unrepentant moral failure, is dragging the name of Jesus through the mud, then you as a brother or sister in Christ have the right and at times the obligation to call them out always in love, always in gentleness and humility, never in hypocrisy, and always with the goal of restoration in mind. One final thing on this brotherly judging is that it really is kind of an insider thing. Remember in the verse that we read earlier, Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is my responsibility to judge insiders sorry, those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those outside. As brothers and sisters, we confess to believe and be surrendered to Jesus and the way of living that he established in his kingdom. But the world, the people who have not surrendered themselves to Jesus, have no intention of living under God's direction. So who are we to try to hold them to the standards of our morals, our ethics, our convictions, when they don't even pretend to hold them themselves. That's not our problem. God will judge them in his timing. Not our deal. No, when it comes to non-believers, our job is to show them the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Create a space for them, for God to work in their hearts. If they invite you to speak into their life, then great, speak wisely. But otherwise, we are doing far more harm than good. We are getting in the way and building higher walls between the world and the majesty of Jesus Christ. As I begin to wrap up, I just want to highlight one more big idea in all of this. Matthew 7, verse 6, the the verse right after the plank and the speck in the eye story. It seems to be a hard shift from where we've been going. Jesus says, Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. <laughs> what? <laughs> it seems so out of left field. But Jesus is actually using this idea about the pigs and the pearls to highlight the opposite of, judging, of the judging reality. See, the first section says that we shouldn't judge others. Otherwise, we're going to be judged by God to the same degree that we judge. But then this section says, don't throw your pearls to the pigs. Don't waste uh, what is holy on unholy people. All right, talk about judgy Jesus. Relax. See, the point that Jesus is making is that while we need to not be hypocritical and judge others with what they're struggling with, we also, on the opposite side, should not just naively accept things. The pearls in this story symbolize the value of the message of the kingdom of God something so valuable that it should not be given to those who are not appreciative for their precious truths. We are not to defile the holy message of God by those who are unreceptive or who have rejected Jesus' invitation. Picture I managed to get my hands on the Mona Lisa, and I bring it home as a gift to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. (laughs) Do you know what's going to happen to it? she's going to find markers and crayons and pens, and she's going to draw all over that thing. Scribbles, her attempts at stars, all sorts of stuff. See, Haven has absolutely zero care in the world for the Mona Lisa. To her, it's just another canvas to be drawn on. And when she's done, she'll probably proudly lift it up and say, Daddy, look, having no idea the irreparable damage she's just caused to this valuable painting. See, that's what the message of the kingdom of God is like, the majesty of Christ is like. It's so valuable, it's so beautiful, that Jesus tells us that we need to be wisely discerning in who we give this to. Okay, is anybody else confused? We're going back and forth here. What are you talking about, Jesus? On one hand, you tell me not to judge, and then on the other hand, you basically tell me to judge. Well, which is it? Yes. The answer is yes. It's both. See, one of the most important keys to our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ is balance. We are constantly faced with dilemmas where there are two sides to something. From our perspective, they appear to be contradictory, or but in both sorry, they appear to be contradictory, but in reality, both can actually be true. Here's the challenge we face. When these dilemmas arise, most of us have a tendency towards polarization, towards extremism. We come across two seemingly opposite truths, and we tend to grab a hold of one of them, and then ignore or reject or exclude or even attack the other one. I think it's safe to say that we are acutely aware of this in our world right now. This is easily the most polarized our world has been in my lifetime. We are so black and white on everything. There's almost never any room in the middle. There's this side and this side. And anybody on the opposite side of you is evil and horrible for landing there. This may be the most controversial thing I say all morning, but when I look at the gospel and the life of Jesus, there is far more balance, far more nuance, far more gray to how Jesus taught and approached people and issues than we do. Scripture itself is full of these seemingly opposite ideas. Big theological debates like God's sovereignty versus our responsibility and free will. Male headship versus women leading in the church. pre postmillennialism. Did spiritual gifts cease to exist with the apostles or do we still experience them today? Or even in more everyday examples, like in one place we're told in scripture, let our light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And then later, we're told, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Or Paul tells us that we can rest in who we are because of our personal righteousness in Christ. But elsewhere, we're told to press on towards perfection. These are all legitimate topics with two seemingly opposite sides that can be supported by Scripture. I'm not here to open any big can of worms and start debating. All I'm saying is that there are people far more intelligent, far more researched than you and I, that have debated debated these things for centuries. There are people who are convinced on either side of these arguments. And you know what? In every example I just gave, and countless more, there are true, fervent, deeply serious followers of Jesus on both sides. We even see the complexity of this balance in Proverbs 26, verses four to five. It says, don't answer, the foolish arguments of a f- don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become foolish as they are. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. What? <laughs> it's the very next verse. What do I do with that? Even in worldly issues, this is true. In politics, the right is correct to a point. The left is correct, to a point. We aren't to hitch ourselves to a party. We are Jesus people. We're not conservative or liberal people. My point is that Christian life should be marked by balance because scripture can be a balancing act between numerous, seemingly opposite perspectives, and most importantly, because Jesus was constantly balancing. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery? There's these religious people ready to stone her to death. And then Jesus shows up, and he helps the religious people to see that they're no better, that they're sinners too, and what right do they have to stone her? And then he looks her in the eyes, and he tells her, I don't condemn you. In that moment, she experiences the perfect and full grace of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He continues and says, now go and sin no more. And in that moment, she experiences the perfect and full truth of Jesus. Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry can be defined as him showing full and perfect grace, full and perfect truth 100% of the time. He was perfectly balanced. See, all of us land somewhere on this grace-truth scale. Like in everything, the majority of us are probably polarized to one side or the other or either loads of grace, very little truth, or loads of truth and very little grace. But the goal of our discipleship is to become more and more like him every day. And that means growing in our balance of grace and truth. Some of us need to drop the stones and pick up the face of whoever we're opposed to and say, I don't condemn you. I have grace for you where you're at. While some of us may need to turn down the, it's okay, no big deal, you're fine, and offer up the truth and the life that's found in the gospel. Just to bring this back full circle to our passage today, where in one verse we're told not to judge, and then a few verses later we're told to have discernment about people. I think Jesus would look at us and say, yeah, you need to learn balance. Don't judge because absolute judgment is God's alone to determine, and because we're all too often hypocritical when we try but there definitely is room and necessity to judge or to challenge or confront in humble ways at times. Over and over and over again, it seems that there are two sides to things, opposites that are both actually true at the same time, and we need to find a healthy balance in them. And while being sure not to become blind to actual contradictions and begin to compromise ourselves in the gospel. As we wrap up, We're going to share in a time of communion together. But to prepare our hearts to share in this, I want to wrap up the way that Jesus wrapped up this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Immediately after the Do Not Judge section, Jesus says this, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the doors will be opened. I want to invite the band back up. This is actually another verse that is often taken out of context itself. And it may feel a little bit disjointed from where we've been. But it's really more of a concluding statement as Jesus begins to summarize the entire Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the sermon, he has given his disciples a pretty detailed description of what it actually looks like to live a true kingdom life amidst the fallen world. And so his summary after the instructions is simply ask, seek, knock. Because we are helpless to accomplish these things on our own. We need to ask, seek, and knock. We need to invite Jesus into the areas where we fall short. That is the only way that we will ever be able to live kingdom-focused lives. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want us to apply this back to our passage this morning. For each of us to not judge hypocritically, yet to evaluate and challenge others wisely and appropriate i want to encourage you to approach the father with expectation that you will receive power to walk in that ask seek and knock and the door will be open to you this door of balance between judging not judging and evaluating and challenging others wisely and appropriately you may find it difficult to give other disciples the benefit of the doubt yet to be on guard for those who would harm the community, to judge no one, yet to be wisely observant and discerning, to see the true character of people and deal with them accordingly. But I believe that through the divine power supplied by God, as we, his disciples, ask, seek, and knock, we can avoid the extremes of these verses and find a beautiful balance that Jesus himself lived in day to day. So here's some examples that I want to invite you to pray through as we prepare our hearts for communion. Where do I land on the grace-truth scale? Ask God to grow you on the opposite side of the spectrum that you find yourself. Where do I need to repent of being judgmental and even unknowingly taking, trying to take God's place as the ultimate judge? Do I need to ask someone's forgiveness today? Have I been hypocritical and allowed the plank in my own eye to cause me to unfairly judge the speck in someone else's eye? Where have I been a weak brother or sister and not challenged or confronted another when I know that they're walking harmfully or in opposition to the gospel? And have you found your few? If not, ask, seek, and knock about who they may be. These questions are going to remain on the screen for a little bit. I encourage you to take this seriously, to ask, seek, and knock. Would the Holy Spirit speak to every one of our hearts this morning? Don't rush past this. Allow the Holy Spirit to do some work this morning.